Like a chrysalis, we're emerging from the economy of the Industrial Revolution. An economy confined to and limited by the Earth's physical resources into the economy in mind, in which there are no bounds on human imagination and the freedom to create is the most precious natural resource. Welcome to the Soul of Enterprise, Business and the Knowledge Economy, sponsored by SAGE, transforming the way people think and work so the organizations can thrive. I'm Ron Baker, along with my good friend and Verisage Institute colleague, Ed Kless. On today's show, folks, we're honored to have Colin Rule, the president and CEO of Mediate.com. Hey, Ed, how's it going? Pretty good, Ron. How are you? Very well. Been looking forward to this. I know we had to reschedule Colin from a couple weeks ago or whatever but uh he's finally here and uh been looking forward to this for a long time i'll read his bio let's get him in colin rule was the first employee employee hired by mediate.com when he served as mediate's first general manager in 1999 he founded onlineresolution.com in 2000 one of the world's first online dispute resolution providers he is the author of two books online dispute resolution for business and the new handshake, love that title, online dispute resolution and the future of consumer protection. He holds a master's degree from Harvard on conflict resolution and technology, and he served as a Peace Corps volunteer in Eritrea from 1995 to 97. Colin, welcome to the Soul of Enterprise. Thank you so much, Ron, and hi, Ed. Great to be here with the two of you. Well, we were introduced uh, to you from by Ronnie Deaver from his podcast that Ed and I appeared on, Evolving with the That's Times right. podcast. So thank you so much for doing this. I know I didn't do justice to your bio. so No, us, you did more than justice, and, please. No, never do. Uh, fill us in on your background. How, how, how'd you get here? Sure, sure. Well, that's, I was born a long time ago. No, I won't go that far back. Um, no, uh, I'm, I've always been a, a interested in dispute resolution. And, uh, and I'm also a nerd. So uh, there was a long time when dispute resolution, mediation, arbitration really didn't have anything to do with technology. But um, I actually, I, I think I was telling Ed, I grew up in North Texas, and I ran a bulletin board out of my bedroom on my old Apple II. And then uh, when the internet hit, people started to say, well, wait a minute, how are we going to resolve all these disputes between buyers and sellers that are meeting over the internet? I mean, they can't go to small claims court, right? And they said, well, maybe we need to do online dispute resolution. And I was like, aha, that's me. I like dispute resolution and I like technology. So in the late 90s, when ODR took off, I, I just said, this is, this is where I'm going to build my business. So I, I wrote a book called Online Dispute Resolution for Business and started a couple companies. I, I was actually the first director of online dispute resolution at eBay and PayPal. So I worked uh, at, and that was what moved me out here to Silicon Valley. So, so that's it. That's how I ended up here. And, and it turns out technology is very relevant, not only for resolving disputes, but the future of the justice system. And um, we're reinventing it all the time. Now, I guess we're going to have to figure out how to resolve disputes in Mark Zuckerberg's metaverse. So I'll be there. <laughs> I just listened to a fascinating podcast about that. That, that does r- sure. bring up a whole bunch of issues. Maybe we can talk about it. But, you know, we had Daniel Suskin back on the show in 2016, and he sure. wrote a book called The Future of the Professions. And in that book, Colin, he cited three times as many disagreements each year among eBay traders are resolved using online dispute resolution 
then there are lawsuits filed in the entire U.S. court system. That is right. That is right. And uh, and his dad, Richard Susskind, is, has been a leading thinker around uh, how technology is going to transform the justice sector. Uh, he's been a good friend. I mean, I think the two of them have their hands around the truth. You know, my old, my old uh, Texas grandfather always used to say to me, uh, Colin, make me a promise. Build your business where the highway is going, not where the highway is. And I think it's very clear that we are digitizing our society. We are moving all, and the pandemic has accelerated that enormously. So, uh, you know, we, we have to, if you think about how much, how much transformation has occurred in the last 20 years with social networks and iPhones and, you know, Wi-Fi, I think that the next 20 years are going to be even more disruptive than that. If you look at artificial intelligence and you think about the metaverse, and you think about quantum computing. So, you know, we have to continually reinvent the way it is that we deliver the key functions of civil society, one of which is resolving disputes. People need to get fast and fair resolutions to any problems they encounter. And uh, as we build this new online world that we're, we're rapidly moving into, we better think long and hard about how we're going to be able to deliver those fast and fair resolutions. Excellent. Well, and the growth of this sounds amazing. And explain to us the logistical differences and the mechanics. How does ODR differ from ADR? I mean, sure. I, like, do you need a lawyer? Do you know, what are the logistical processes you go through in ODR? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. I think eBay and PayPal uh, are a great case study. Uh, as you said, we, we resolved about 60 million disputes a year at eBay the year I left, which is much, much more than the United States civil court system. And, you know, we already know in face-to-face uh, civil cases, only only about 2% of those cases ever get in front of a judge. You know, most of them get resolved. But the challenge is any of us can pull our phone out and go swipe, swipe, swipe and buy something from anywhere, anywhere, anyone, anywhere in the world. And the challenge is if 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 you buy an item from a seller in Argentina and it's shipped from France, and the marketplace is based in China, well, what law applies? You know, where, if I have a problem, where do I file that case? The justice system is entirely bound to geography. You know, if, 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 uh, if you're a lawyer in Texas and you provide legal advice to somebody in Oklahoma, you can be disbarred. But the internet doesn't care about Texas versus Oklahoma or the United States versus Canada or even North America versus Europe. So we need to build a new justice system, one that works the way the internet works. Because if people are going to be buying all this stuff online, they have to know that if they have any problems, they get it worked out in a, in a uh, fair, transparent, and rapid fashion, or they're not going to move online. So that's why companies like eBay and PayPal and Amazon and Buy.com and Alibaba and um, Airbnb and Uber, they've all built their own redress systems. They all have resolution centers. They all have a way to resolve problems so that people don't have to go to the face-to-face justice system because that's, it just doesn't work for the new world we're moving into. Right. And, and you don't need a lawyer, right, for this? No, no. I, I, it's interesting because a lot of lawyers, when they hear me talk, they're like, uh, wait a minute, where, how do I fit into this? Um, right, right. I still think that lawyers are important, but I do think that we, when we rethink the justice system, there's a whole notion of what we call decentralized justice, whereas instead of judges and jails and laws and um, the civil code, uh, software becomes the law. And when we engage in a transaction, you know, you think about decentralized finance like Bitcoin and Ethereum and all blockchain, smart contracts. Well, now they're taking those same approaches and they're designing a new justice system. 
one that's governed by the rules uh, that are enshrined in the software. So you don't really have to figure out what jurisdiction applies. You know, Ron, if you and I make a contract, we just create a little computer program called a smart contract and we drop it on the blockchain and we e-sign it and it's self-administering. So if a dispute arises, we can initiate an online dispute resolution process. Maybe it's an arbitrator, maybe it's a mediator, maybe it's an algorithm, maybe it's, it's an artificial intelligence arbitrator, but we can resolve that case and then it's automatically enforced via software. You know, that's, that's probably where a lot of this is headed. Now, lawyers that say, oh my gosh, well, how do I fit into this? You know, I'm, I'm used to going down to the courthouse downtown and arguing my cases in person. Well, there's still going to be plenty of that left. But I do think that lawyers are the ones who know how to build this new justice system. So that's why I say you got to build your business where the highway is going. And I think um, judges and lawyers and court administrators and, and people that sort of see these trends, they can innovate the new institutions. So it, it's actually an enormous opportunity for all of us to build a better justice system that reaches more people and has, has lower barriers to entry. I love it. Um, Colin, are these uh, agreements signed off by a court? Once the parties reach a resolution? Yeah. So I, I worked, my company, Modria, that I started after I left eBay, we got acquired by a company called Tyler Technologies, which is uh, based in, in uh, North Texas. But Tyler is actually a multi-billion dollar company that provides software to local governments. But a big division at Tyler is courts and justice. And uh, obviously any, and, and what they did was they took my online dispute resolution software and built it into their suite of software services they provided to the court. So we're seeing increasingly now when someone e-files a case with the court, the court will automatically open up an online collaborative workspace and invite the parties to the dispute into that workspace to try and work it out by mutual agreement. Now, if they can't work it out, then that's fine. They, they go in front of the judge. But um, you know that would be a circumstance where the resolution achieved in the mediation or in the negotiation does get the imprimatur of the court because essentially the case is e-filed, a resolution is achieved, and then the court kind of certifies it. Hmm. But it doesn't have to be. You know, Ron, you and I, we could reach an agreement right now and we could write a smart contract and put it on the blockchain and no court even knows that that agreement was put in place. That's the way contracts work now. The only time the courts know about it is if we eventually have a disagreement about it and then we have to go to the court to resolve it. So contracts already are pretty much a private gig. It's only when issues arise that you have to go to the judicial institutions. And, and I'm really interested in this, especially with your experience at eBay with the 60 million cases a year, which boggles sure, my sure. mind. It, is there an appeals process? If I go through mediation, I don't like the outcome. Where can I go next? Yeah, I mean, one important distinction is mediation is, is kind of like assisted negotiation meaning any outcome in a mediation is by agreement from both of the parties. So if, if you and I have a dispute and we go to mediation, the mediator has no decision-making authority. They're going to help us think through, you know, what are all of the, the components we need to build into an effective agreement? And then we're both going to say, yes, we agree to this. So you usually don't have to work that hard to enforce mediation agreements because both sides are bought in. Now, an evaluative process, like what the courts do or what an arbitration does, that's like Judge Judy. You know, you and I have a disagreement. We go to a third party that we both make our case and the third party renders a decision. And then you have to worry a little bit more about enforcement because, you know, maybe I disagree. Maybe I think that the outcome was, wasn't fair and I'm not that excited about paying you a million dollars. Well, then we have to find a way to ensure that the agreement, if we both agreed to participate in the arbitration, not knowing what the outcome would be, 
we made it, we made an obligation before we started that process to abide by the outcome. So that's one of the reasons why I think this notion of decentralized justice is interesting because the outcomes can be automatically enforced. Sometimes people ask me to build dispute resolution procedures, but there's not really an enforcement mechanism like Craigslist. You know, if, if mm-hmm. I buy something on Craigslist and I have a problem with it, well, kind of too bad. You know, I don't know the actual name or email address of the other party. I can't take the money away from them. I paid them in cash. So even if I'm, if, if a decision is rendered that says I'm entitled to a refund, there's no way to enforce it to make sure I get it. At eBay, we ran PayPal. So if we decided a buyer was entitled to a refund, we could take the money from the seller and give it to the buyer, even if the seller wasn't happy about it. So I think one important determinant of success in ODR is enforceability. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know we've got about a half a minute, but just real quick, sure. I, I would imagine that this also reduces the the incidence and prevalence of filing frivolous claims. Absolutely. Yeah. You got to design your system in such a way there's a disincentive for people to to file frivolous cases. So there are lots of ways to do that. Oh, interesting. Well, maybe Ed will yeah. want to follow up with you on that. But Colin, this is great. Unfortunately, we're at our first break. And folks, we'd like to remind you, if you want to contact Ed or me, send us an email to ask TSOE at Verisage.com. I'd like to give a shout out to our new sponsor, File. They do expense reporting in the cloud. That's F-Y-L-E-H-Q.com. And now a word from our sponsors. Be sure to friend us on Facebook. You can do it right now. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for us at keyword Voice America. Ron, let's take a minute and talk about our new sponsor, File, F-Y-L-E. We saw a demo of this thing, and it's really awesome. It really is. It allows complete flexibility. You can use any program to submit your expenses. I found that completely liberating. Yeah, and of course, it integrates with all of the accounting software out there. Yeah, and they really nailed their pricing. They use a flat pricing system, so you don't pay for all your employees, only the ones that actually file their expense reports. Yep, so check them out at FileHQ.com. That's F-Y-L-E-H-Q.com. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have. Have you ever listened to an advertisement for a book so many times that you question the existence of God? Me too. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I recorded the advertisement for Ron and Ed's book, The Soul of Enterprise Dialogues on Blah 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 Whatever, and four years later, we're all tired of it, especially me. But thankfully, there's a solution. For just $10 a month, you never have to hear my voice again. For a commercial-free version of The Soul of Enterprise, go to patreon.com slash TSOE and subscribe now. 
Have you listened to so many of my ads that it's corroded your soul? I absolutely have. What if I told you that you could listen to my voice for an entire podcast? I'd say that approximately half of the podcast is actually my voice. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. And I'm Caleb Newquist. We're launching a new podcast called Oh My Fraud. Ron and Ed explore the soul of enterprise. Caleb and I explore fraud, which is more like the herpes of enterprise. Go to wherever you get your podcast and download Oh, oh my, my fraud. fraud. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Class. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. We are talking today, folks, with Colin Rule, who is the president and CEO of Mediate.com. And Colin, I want to make sure I got this my, my terms right here. So mediation is where two parties come together with a third party who doesn't have influence, but is now trying to coach the two other parties towards some kind of a settlement. Arbitration would be the same thing, but the, where the, the third party is a, a, a judge or has some kind of a th- authority. Right. Uh, right. And you got then it. By, then binding arbitration would be if the same thing, but the whatever the result is, the parties have to stick to it. Whereas just straight arbitration, they could question it and then still take it to a trial. Do I have, do I have that all right? You, you got out? it dead to rights. You got okay. it dead to rights. And the heart of all of this is negotiation. Obviously, we negotiate yeah. all day long. Like we negotiate with our spouses, we negotiate with our kids, we negotiate with our bosses, our roommates. Mediation is just assisted negotiation. That's all okay. it is. The parties still own the outcome. But a third party comes in and they have process expertise or subject matter expertise that can sort of help keep things on the rails. And there is such a thing called evaluative mediation, where the third party will tell the sides, look, I think this is the appropriate resolution. But the parties still are in control of whether or not they accept that evaluative recommendation. But arbitration, as you say, that's where, you know, you, you both present the case and the arbitrator makes a decision. And that's, that's the way the case is going to be resolved. There's other ways you can vary arbitration. One is called final offer arbitration, where each party uh, each puts puts their proposed solution on the table, and then the arbitrator can only pick from the two offers submitted mm. by the parties. And they have what they call night baseball and day baseball. And night baseball is when you can't see the offer from the other side, and you have to guess what you think they're going to come up with. And day baseball is when you can see their offer, and you can adjust your offer in response. So, you know, there's all these little tricky things that we could do to design appropriate dispute resolution flows. But fundamentally, it's what we call fitting the forum to the fuss. You want to build a resolution process that meets the needs of the parties and their dispute type. And of course, all of this, the court system included, is based on an, a, an assumption of rationality. So it always breaks down when one of the parties is irrational, because then the system kind of has to cater to the least mature, which is bizarre. But <laughs> Yeah. Well, it's interesting, too, because obviously rationality, quote unquote, is in the eye of the beholder. It's a very right. common thing in a protracted dispute for each side to believe the other side is irrational. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and uh, so, and I think we see that in our modern society, you know, you look at the other side, how can they think that, you know, it's just, it's a very common thing. But a lot of what we try and do in the mediation field is sort of establish what are the common goals that people have in resolving a dispute. Oftentimes, people will look at their disputes as zero sum. We call them distributive negotiations. There's a fixed pie of value and every dollar you get is a dollar I don't get. But that's actually not the way most disputes work. Most of the time, there's an opportunity for what we call value creation, which is an integrative negotiation, where how can we work together to expand the pie? 
because then we can both get more. And I think that people oftentimes, it's very easy to fall into that distributive frame. And mediators can work with parties to see opportunities for, for value creation. And, and that's a lot of where we can add, you know, add value in working with negotiators. Well, that's a perfect lead-in because I, it, 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 where I was going with this is the, this notion of rationality. If you're introducing AI into the flow, there's sure. there's there's not human creativity that's going on where the, where we'd have this negotiation. It would be a human brain that's trying to come up with this. How, does right. AI somehow simulate this the, this notion of of uh, of give get? And you you've you've got to write a rational program in AI by definition. Sure. <laughs> Sure. Well, it, actually, I'm sure there's uh, books and books or, you know, hundreds of PhD theses thinking about what is rationality for an AI, you know, like uh, machine learning mechanisms are actually not that complicated. You know, they look at giant, giant pools of data and then they draw out correlations. They find patterns, they find rules. And sometimes the correlations they see are beyond our ability to as humans to comprehend but they can look at millions and millions, even billions of records and find these correlations. So then when you bring in a new case, all it does is take those rules and correlations it came up with when it analyzed that big data set and it applies it to the new case and makes an estimation of what the appropriate outcome should be. So AI is a tool. And the reason why we're talking about it so much now is because computer processors are becoming so unimaginably powerful compared to what they were a decade ago. And they're gonna to continue to become more powerful now that we have quantum computing. So, uh, and, and storage too. We now have the ability to store just unimaginable quantities, petabytes and petabytes of, of information, which was inconceivable 10 years ago. So that's taking AI to the next level. So I think, you know, this whole notion of, are we going to have digital judges? Are we going to like have a digital learned hand, you know, that listens to both sides and comes in and rationally renders, renders a decision? Um, you know, I'm not sure that AI, that's the best way for us to use AI. There may be other ways that we could use AI that would be more powerful in terms of scoring cases, or maybe we have a human decision maker, but the AI is providing advice and insight that the human decision maker not be able, might not be able to get their hands on. In, in online dispute resolution, we don't talk about AI as much as we talk about what we call, quote unquote, the fourth party. So party one and party two are the disputants. Party three is the human neutral, like the mediator or the arbitrator. And the fourth party is technology, like a happy little robot, you know, kind of sitting at the table. And the question is, what do you ask that robot to do? Maybe you can say, go research a million cases and tell me what the average resolution is for cases like this. Or maybe you can ask the robot to evaluate what we call the BATNA, which is the best alternative to a negotiated agreement for the parties. And it doesn't have to be a robot. It could be an Amazon Echo or something on the table listening to everything that everyone's saying, you know, and evaluating the, the strength of each case. But there's no question that technology is going to play a big role in how we resolve our disputes in the future. We don't know exactly what that's going to look like. But you know, AI, I think we need to be we need to be honest about what it can do and what it can't do. And, you know, rationality to me seems a little bit more of a philosophical concept, you know, as opposed to what can the tool achieve, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, the, the, the we've had George Gilder on and, you know, he t he talks often, often about oh, wow. if, 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 a, if a if a computer program uh, surprises you, it means it's broken. <laughs> right. Right. I love that. <laughs> That's great. That's right, because there, there should be a way to trace the steps in some way to say how did the how did you get this answer right? So that because it, it, well, <laughs> that's a that's a it's a great point. And one of the things that we talk a lot about in dispute resolution and in in justice because I teach at law schools, we we talk about procedural justice. We say the process is fair, 
And everybody can look at this process and say, yes, it's fair, it's neutral, it's transparent, it's impartial. Now, you can go through that process and you can get an outcome you disagree with. But you say, well, you know, look, I know the process was fair, even though I feel the outcome is unfair. So I feel like there's justice in the process. The thing about AI is, as I said, some of the, what goes on inside an AI is beyond our ability to comprehend it. You know, um, I, I read a study the other day that says you, they've shown millions and millions of x-rays of human hands to AIs. And now the AIs can determine the race of the person whose hand it is to like 95% certainty. <clears throat> but doctors have no idea how they're doing it. There's, you, you can't show an x-ray to a human doctor and say, what race is the person whose hand this is? They don't know how they're doing it. But the AIs have gotten so much data that now they can see that correlation. So if we say to an AI, okay, decide our case for us, it may go through a process of applying rules that are beyond our comprehension. It may render a decision. So we don't know about the procedural justice of that. We only know about the outcome. And the justice of an outcome is very much in the eye of a beholder. You know, I, I may say, wow, that guy got 20 years for that crime. That's really, that's, a, that's, that's too high. And someone else may say, wow, that's not nearly high enough. But there's no objective ruler that says that that outcome is just or unjust other than our particular perspective. So that may be a challenge in integrating AI into the justice system is we, we lose our grasp. The, the, the justice process becomes a little bit of a black box. Um, so I'm sure that's something Daniel and, and Richard are thinking about right now for their next book. And, and where would you see the, 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 the notion of, because you, you're now bringing up uh, the criminal trial element in, into it as well, which I think is really fascinating. Sure. I don't know if we'll ever get to the point where we want, we want as human beings, uh, as some kind of an AI determining our guilt or innocence. So I don't know if we'll, we'll get away yeah. from you know, juries, but, but certainly the sentence could be something that we would turn over to AI and away from a judge based on, you know, other case law and, and, and uh, really what's the precedence that happened before. Well, Ed, you put your hand right on it. There's actually a case that's going to the Supreme court. Now I think it's out of Wisconsin or Minnesota, and it's an AI, AI company that provides sentencing guidelines to judges in criminal trials. So judges will decide that somebody's guilty and then they use this computer program. They can put in the details of the offense and details about the offender, and it'll recommend a, a sentencing range. Well, the lawsuit was from advocates for um, offenders, and they said, well, we want to know why this program is recommending X, Y, or Z thing. And the company said, no, we're not going to tell you that because that's our proprietary data. So you can't look at it. So that's going to the Supreme Court to take a look at it. One of the things that's interesting is when judges first got access to this program, they only took the recommendation from the software about 50% of the time. But over time, and they got more confidence in the software, they started to take the recommendation 70%, 80%, 90% of the time. So we still have a human that's making the decision. But the AI has proven its accuracy over time and trustworthiness, and the humans are starting to rely more and more on the algorithm. So even though we have a human decision maker, it's only disagreeing with the algorithm about 10% of the time. And I imagine at some point we're going to get to essentially 100% of the time. Humans are going to acknowledge that that AI is doing a better job than they would do. Interesting. Well, we've only got about a minute left, so I want to ask you a, a slightly off-topic question that is sure. short enough for you to answer. Uh, and that is, have we seen an increase uh, in mediations with uh, COVID-19 online? We stuff? have. We have, but we've seen a massive move online. I would say 90% of mediations were offline, face-to-face -face before, and mm -hmm. now easily 90, 95% are online. And I don't think we're ever going to go back 
to more than 50% being face to face. I was going to say, so you don't see the it reverting back either. That's, that's, that's no, a little bit, a little bit a little back bit. when we get post, but I think it's, I think the online's never is, it's never going to go away now. All right. Well, we're up against our break. I want to remind you, you can contact Ron or me by sending an email to asktsoe at verisage.com. Our Patreon channel, patreon.com slash TSOE is available if you want to sign up for that. You can get commercial free episodes as well as our bonus episodes that we put out weekly with our show as well. And that bonus episode and and Patreon channel is sponsored by 90 Minds. Need a mind? Get one at 90minds.com. But right now, a word from our sponsor. Voice America is on your favorite smart speaker. If you have Alexa or Google Home, go ahead and give us a try. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast on TuneIn. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Have you ever listened to an online radio show that changed your life? I'm required to say that I have. Have you ever stopped listening to an online radio show because the commercials were mind-numbingly repetitive? Of course you haven't because you're here right now. Look, you don't have to listen to me anymore. There's a commercial-free version of this show and it only costs $10 a month. And for $15 a month, you get no commercial commercials plus bonus content go to patreon.com slash tsoe subscribe now and be free you're worth it Ron, let's take a minute and talk about our new sponsor, File, F-Y-L-E. We saw a demo of this thing, and it's really awesome. It really is. It allows complete flexibility. You can use any program to submit your expenses. I found that completely liberating. Yeah, and of course, it integrates with all of the accounting software out there. Yeah, and they really nailed their pricing. They use a flat pricing system, so you don't pay for all your employees, only the ones that actually file their expense reports. Yep, so check them out at FileHQ.com. That's F-Y-L-E-H-Q.com. This is the Voice America Influencers Channel. Be inspired. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. Welcome back, everybody. We're here with Colin Rule, the president and CEO of Mediate.com. And Colin, this is kind of a simple question, but what areas are covered by ODR? I mean, I get the impression that your folks work across a range of issue, IP, business, family law. Is it, it, does it literally cover everything except maybe bankruptcy? Well, I would even include bankruptcy. I mean, uh, the interesting thing is, uh, you made this connection before, Ron, which I appreciate, the connection between ODR and ADR. So ADR is alternative dispute resolution, and that's, that's face-to-face mediation and arbitration. 
And we really see ADR touching every area of disputes. I mean, everything from really low dollar value, like we have neighbor disputes, you know, barking dogs and things like that, all the way up to multi-billion dollar, you know, uh, construction disputes um, through international organizations. There's a, a group called the International Chamber of Commerce in Paris, and they have the ICC Court of Arbitration. And they resolve a lot of these disputes that are so huge that they you know, they cross many, many legal jurisdictions. So commercial arbitration is, is a very mature area that deals with those really high dollar value disputes. Now, when ODR came into play, as I said, in the 90s, it was really focused on these high volume, low value cross-border e-commerce disputes. So the real sweet spot for ODR was low value transactional disputes like eBay purchases would be a good example. Um, another early example of uh, scalable ODR was uh, domain name disputes because, mm. you know, anybody can buy a domain name anywhere in the world. So which court do you decide if two people disagree about who should own table.com or window.com? So the ICANN, the Internet Corporation for Assigned Names and Numbers, they designed something called the UDRP, the Uniform Domain Name Dispute Resolution Protocol where you could go online and you can resolve these cases. And then if, if they decide, okay, well, Ed has a domain name, but Ron should really be the one to own it. Well, ICANN runs a database. So they just go in the database and they switch who owns it. And then, you know, Ron has it and Ed doesn't have it anymore. So the UDRP is another example of a good early application for ODR. And when I first started doing this late nineties, early aughts, you know, I thought complex emotional disputes like family disputes, workplace disputes. I just thought they weren't a good fit. I was really focused on these very transactional disputes, you know, usually between strangers over a relatively small amount of money. But that's really changed. I mean, family disputes is one of the hottest areas for ODR. Um, there are uh, lots of websites now where you can get an online divorce and they'll help you put together a parenting plan and they'll help you figure out who's going to pick the kids up from t-ball practice on Tuesday and who's going to pay for summer camp. Um, it's over easy.com, hello, divorce.com, wevorce.com, blissdivorce.com. I mean, the examples go on and on. And so what's changed between 2010, and 2021? Well, the internet has become a much bigger part of our lives and people are not weirded out by the idea of working out their parenting plan arrangements through an app. Um, you know, it's just the way we do everything now. The younger generation in particular is extremely comfortable with emotional communication via technology. Um, you know, my, my younger son had a girlfriend. I think they only dated through Skype. They never, you know, went out to a movie. So <laughs> that's just, that's the way the younger generation works. So, and it's just going to accelerate because I get, guarantee his kids are going to be way more comfortable with it even than he is. So, uh, so that's, I think now we're seeing ODR applied into other um, areas, but you think about low dollar value, civil caseloads, landlord, tenant, workplace, debt, um, you know, you said bankruptcy, probate, those are all good areas. Now, I never thought that ODR was relevant to criminal courts, but now I'm having judges come to me and say, you know, most of these criminal cases, especially low value criminal cases, they're resolved through negotiation. You know, it's mm -hmm. plea bargaining and back and forth. So there's no reason why you can't use these tools for those cases as well. So I think you're going to see technology work its way into higher dollar value cases over time. Yeah. Um, wow. Just like it did to lower value cases. That's fantastic. Wow. It's like the court system 2.0 or something. It's That's wonderful. Kind of. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Um, yeah. The courts are not made to innovate. So it's tough to get them to move. It's like turning around an aircraft carrier. But slowly right. but surely, I think, you know, the younger generation is starting to take the reins of power 
and they say, look, we need to get technology in here because this is just the way society works now. Well, Colin, you'll like this question because it's not mine. This comes from Ann Sawyer, who I know you know because, <laughs> oh, now, yeah? of course, That's right. she's uh, executive director at 90 Minds, and she was thrilled when she found out you were going to be on the show. And I said, well, what would you like to ask them? And she said, here's her question. And I think this is a great question. Where do you think online mediation could be the most effective, but isn't even being considered at this time? Wow. That's a great question. And yeah, you might, you might, I've got a couple candidates in my head as to where I think that it it could fit. Um, you know, one, I, I teach a class uh, at Stanford Law School, and at the end of the class, I often um, uh, have my students say, you know, where would you apply ODR and how would you design the system? And one of the areas that's very interesting to me, and a lot of my students have been writing about this, is um, video games. You know, there's a lot of disputes that arise in World of Warcraft or in Dota or in uh, League of Legends, you know, these games are very complicated now and people spend a lot of time in them. They build up a lot of value in them. And now that we're seeing the metaverse expand, I think we're going to see a massive jump in disputes. Not only, you know, the kinds of interaction type disputes we have on social media like Facebook and Twitter, but I think also tangible items because people can create things in these games and who owns what. So I think there's going to be a huge rise in those cases. And I'm, I'm really interested in somebody um, being creative about applying the techniques of online dispute resolution to those cases. That's something I, I think is going to be a hotter topic over the next 10 years. I don't know if that's what Anne was thinking I was going to answer, but that, that's, that's my answer. No, she was really curious what you were going to say to that. And, and, you know, we were talking about the meta verse before and uh, Cato daily has a daily podcast and they had a fellow on there talking about it. And he said, well, look, if you're in the metaverse and you create a, you know, you, you create a piece of property and somebody yeah. comes and lights a fire next to it. Is yeah. that arson in the metaverse? You know, how, oh, yeah. how, yeah. how do you resolve some of these property disputes that could come up and even criminal disputes that could come up in these, you know, augmented or virtual reality Absolutely. environments? It's fascinating stuff. Yeah. I mean, I, I did some work with a group called Second Life a few years yeah. ago. So, yeah. you know, they say the future is already here, but it's just not evenly distributed. So, you know, uh, Zuckerberg's metaverse this is not new. They've been messing around with this for a long time, but we spent a lot of time talking about dispute resolution in Second Life because they said when someone created something in Second Life, they owned it. It wasn't owned by Second Life. It was owned by the person that created it. So there were a lot of IP disputes. There were a lot of property disputes. I mean, they had, they were selling houses in Second Life for a million dollars for a while, you know, and if somebody built a house on the hill below you and blocked your view, you know, you had a, you had a grievance, you had to work it out. So we, we were brought in to resolve some of those cases. I think that's going to, that stuff sounds very George Jetson, you know, futuristic now, but I think that's going to become more and more common as we move into this new online world we're building. So I'm excited to see it all come together. We'll see. Yeah. yeah, Ed always says he has f- not future shock, but future glee. You know, you had mentioned to Ed the uh, mediators being able to create value, not just this zero sum, you win, I lose type of thing. Right. Could, could right. you just give us a quick example of that? Yeah, I mean, just there's lots anything. of examples we use in trainings. I mean, a, the classic story is uh, two, two uh, sisters arguing over an orange, you know, who gets the orange and they're fighting and fighting. The mom comes in and says, what, you know, what are you fighting about? And one says, well, I, I want to make a pie. I need the rind. I need the zest. And the other one says, oh, well, I wanted to get some orange juice. It's like, okay. You know, you're arguing over one thing, but you each want different components of that one thing. And that, that's a story to illustrate the principle of integrated decision-making. 
but there are lots and lots of ways where, you know, the two of us, if we're, if we're um, business partners and we're arguing uh, over who's going to get what share of the sale of the company, and then we say, oh, wait a minute, maybe there's another asset. There's another, we can go find another buyer um, if we add in these other assets that gets us more money. You know, there's, there's lots of ways to expand the pie. And unfortunately, human nature, it's very easy for us to get locked into a certain, like, this is the frame and we just have to divide this value. I don't know if you ever saw the movie Beautiful Mind um, mm. about Richard Nash, but he, he actually got famous for something called the Nash Equilibrium, which is where two negotiators, they reach a point where neither side is willing to make an additional concession. But there's a better outcome out there that the two, but they can't get to it because neither of them are willing to make, to make another concession. So there are ways that technology can jump over those Nash equilibria and push you out to the Pareto optimal frontier where you actually deliver more value to both sides. And uh, so there's, and, and algorithms can help with that. They can get insights into the values of different negotiating partners and the negotiating partners don't want to put all their cards on the table because then you see all of your leverage in a negotiation. But if you share that information with a computer, it can say, well, here actually is an outcome that delivers more value to both of you that you never would have imagined because you weren't willing to um, fully disclose all of your negotiating leverage. So that's, you know, maybe that's another example of how the fourth party can get us to better, better resolutions. Mm, I love it. Tell us about the mediators themselves, Colin. Do, are they in all 50 states? Do they do this full time? Sure, what? sure. Well, there's a uh, so mediate.com, we're the largest community of mediators in the world. And I think we've got about 30,000 mediators in our directory. Wow. But that's only a tiny slice. I mean, there's mediators in every country around the world. And there's examples of mediation going back to Mesopotamia and ancient Rome. I mean, these techniques are nothing new. Um, so, you know, it's interesting to talk about mediators who is often drawn to this work uh, because there's a, many different personalities that end up as mediators. You know, oftentimes people think of mediators as kind of the kumbaya, well, let's all hold hands. But, you know, there's a lot of people, there are hostage negotiators that deal with very tense situations. There's labor management negotiators that, you know, do mediation on the front lines of strikes, you know, where violence is always a risk. There's there's uh, gang intervention mediators who try and get in the middle of violence, you know, at 3 a.m. on a Saturday in a tough neighborhood, you know, they actually go out on the streets and try and stop violence from escalating. So, you know, there's, I think there's a stereotype about how mediation works, but the reality is there's so many different kinds of mediation. Everybody who's working with divorcing couples to commercial mediators dealing with contract disputes to, as I said, you know, sort of um, very tense, violent, risky situations. So it's a, it's, it's really, a, it's, I, my wife says, don't you want to do anything else? Don't you want to like get another career at some point? I'm like, no, this is so fascinating. It's such an interesting space. There's so many directions to go and so much good work to be done. So for me, mediation is kind of like practical peacemaking. You know, peacemaking seems kind of diffuse up in the clouds, but mediation is very specific. You can learn how to do it. You can get good at it. You can go find disputes to engage with. So it's, it's, a, it's, it's a lot of fun. It's a great community to be a part of. That's, that's fantastic. We had a colleague, uh, that uh, he was a, a chartered accountant, but he loved being a mediator and sure. he kind of did that as a side gig and absolutely loved it. Um, real quick, we've only got about a half minute. How, how predominantly do they price? Cause one of the big problems with litigation, even yeah. arbitration is the whole you know, unpredictability of the fee. How do the mediators right. price? Well, a lot of mediators are inspired by lawyers. So they charge for their time. 
But in the online dispute resolution space, when we have algorithms delivering a lot of the service, we, we try and get to flat rate pricing as much as possible because time-based pricing can really uh, misalign the incentives of the service provider with the client. So that's why people don't trust lawyers. They think they just keep making the dispute go on and on to get more money. So um, right. th- there's a lot of models for pricing. And I think dispute, online dispute resolution is shaking that up a little bit. Oh, wonderful. Yeah. As one colleague said to us, uh, lawyers are paid not to finish. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, Colin, Ed's going to take you the rest of the way home, but I just wanted to say thank you. It was an absolute honor to be able to talk to you. This oh, was thank you, really- Ron. This is great. Uh, this is really fascinating, folks. Again, if you want to contact me or Ed, send us an email to asktsoe at verisage.com. Ed mentioned our 90 Minds uh, sponsored uh, Patreon channel. And at a certain tier at that Patreon, you can get a shout out like Geraldine Carter did. Check Geraldine out at shethinksbigcoaching.com and her podcast, Smart Strategy for CPAs. And now we want to hear from our sponsors and Ed's employer, Sage. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Ron, let's take a minute and talk about our new sponsor, File, F-Y-L-E. We saw a demo of this thing, and it's really awesome. It really is. It allows complete flexibility. You can use any program to submit your expenses. I found that completely liberating. Yeah, and of course, it integrates with all of the accounting software out there. Yeah, and they really nailed their pricing. They use a flat pricing system, so you don't pay for all your employees, only the ones that actually file their expense reports. Yep, so check them out at FileHQ.com. That's F-Y-L-E-H-Q.com. Have you ever been so annoyed by a commercial for a $5 ebook that you were willing to pay $10 to never hear it again? I sure have. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. Over the last several years, you've come to hate me, and I hate me too. By now, you know that for $5, you can get a copy of Ron and Ed's book. What you might not know is for twice that much every month for forever, you can stop hearing me plug Ron and Ed's book, which totally makes sense, like the Diamond Water Paradox. Go to patreon.com slash TSOE and subscribe today. Please, for the love of God, make it stop! Have you listened to so many of my ads that it's corroded your soul? I absolutely have. What if I told you that you could listen to my voice for an entire podcast? I'd say that approximately half of the podcast is actually my voice. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. And I'm Caleb Newquist. We're launching a new podcast called Oh My Fraud. Ron and Ed explore the soul of enterprise. Caleb and I explore fraud, which is more like the herpes of enterprise. Go to wherever you get your podcasts and download... Oh, Oh my my fraud. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. Well, 
Colin, before we move on in a question, I just want to mention to you, I'm a huge bet uh, baseball fan. And if you could uh, start to mediate on uh, the the labor dispute that's happening right now, I don't want to lose oh, another yeah. season. <laughs> well, it's funny. We were just talking about night baseball and day baseball arbitration. But yeah, I mean, uh, it's, it's interesting. Dispute resolution is a big part of sports. And you'll hear people say, oh, he's going to arbitration because it's mm -hmm. a clause in everybody's contract. So a lot of times professional hockey players, baseball players, football players, they'll exercise that arbitration clause. And the, the Olympics, too, all those disputes with biking and you know bicycling and Olympics, it's all resolved through dispute resolution because it's not subject to any one jurisdiction. So, so it's, it's interesting. That whole area of sports arbitration is, is fascinating. Yeah, it, I, I think one of the things that's at, at play right now is that the players want to be able to go to arbitration sooner than they have in the past. So, right. Because the, right. the salaries of, of Major League Baseball players have, have not gone up as much as like football and, and basketball players. So that's one right. Of, that's one of the sticking points. <laughs> so well, it's, 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 yeah, it's labor very arbitration. <laughs> yeah. Well, I know I have some good friends that do collective bargaining. And that's interesting, too, like um, the Federal Mediation Conciliation Service and National Mediation Board, they do like, you know, the Pilots Association with United. And then it's not like you're negotiating your contract with your employer. It's like all of you collectively are negotiating this agreement. And there's a lot of moving parts. So that's a situation where you're never going to get 100% resolution. It's always a moving target. So it's a lot more about conflict management and just trying to keep the relationship between labor and management productive and make sure that everybody feels like they're getting a fair shake. Um, you know, it's interesting. I saw a Starbucks just they did the union vote that passed, I think it was in New York State. So, you know, it, these conflicts, they're not going to go away. Uh, you can't wave a magic wand and say, OK, everybody's going to be happy now. You know, we've gotten the magic distribution of resources. Nope. A week later, you're going to have conflict again. It's just the human condition. You know, we have we have competing interests. So, uh, yeah, it's it'll be interesting to see what happens with baseball. I'm a big baseball fan, too. I lived in Boston for a while, so I'm, I believe oh, Red Sox. So you're. I don't know if you're a Yankees fan. Don't say if you are, but I'm a Met, maybe, no, a Mets maybe we can fan. find common ground. Yeah, Mets. I'm a Mets okay, fan. That's good. good. Yeah, so Red Sox fans love the Mets. <laughs> we, fans. we hate okay, the Yankees great. together. That's good. That's good. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, on that, though, you know, one, one thing that was also in, I believe, the, the, the Suskin book is a website called do not pay dot com. I don't know if you're familiar with that. I am. And they, yeah. you know, they, they started out as a how to dispute your, I think, traffic tickets, traffic violations. Tickets but San now Francisco, they've expanded, yeah. expanded out. I, I, I they'll, you know, the, they, they, they'll even, you know, can, it's one of the things on their website now is sue anyone. <laughs> <laughs> with do not so what about what about this what about lawyers actually being replaced by absolutely the, the artificial intelligence talk a little bit about that yeah i mean i i just wrote an article for um for a journal with some colleagues talking about agents and there's a lot of vision of sort of okay how do we use software agents in the future to handle a lot of our cases so you know we've been talking a lot about uh software playing the role of an arbitrator for instance but one of the things that's interesting is if we go to a software program like Do Not Pay and we say, okay, I got this ticket, I didn't deserve it. And then Do Not Pay collects all of our information. What was the meter number? When did you get the ticket? Do you have a picture of it? You know, why do you think? So they gather all this information. And then that software program goes off and fights on your behalf. So they'll file an appeal. They'll pursue it. They'll try and get the ticket canceled. And they do it for a percentage of the money that you get back, in essence. So, you know, that's kind of what a lawyer does. Now, again, it's, it's, it's a pretty dumb lawyer. I mean, I think the do not pay mechanism is not, you know, you're not getting, uh, 
you know, some famous lawyer to come and Johnny Cochran to come and fight your parking ticket. But I do think it's an interesting model that you would have an algorithm essentially go out and advocate. So you could say, hey, I have this dispute and I want to get some money back. I just had a chargeback against Thrifty. Ugh, don't even get me started about this because they, they really messed this up. But if I had an algorithm that I could go and provide all the information and it would go, I would go away and come back and say, hey, I got you this resolution. Are you willing to accept this? And I'd say, yeah, that looks pretty good. Or no, no, that's not good. I want you to keep, keep going and find me a better resolution. And maybe we'll get to the point where we give our information to algorithms on the side of each of the parties and then they go in front of a third party agent, which is the arbitrator, or maybe they go in front of a hundred third party agents who listen to the arguments as advanced by the agents and render a decision. And then they bring it back to the humans and say, hey, this is the resolution you got. Are you happy with this or do you want to keep pursuing it? So this, this notion of agent-based resolution, is it's, it's an intriguing concept. And I think do not pay is on the front lines of that. Um, but then there are other mechanisms. There's one called um, rentervention in Chicago which has a little bot that'll help you work out issues with your landlord. You know, it's not, it's not going to take your landlord to court, but it'll, it'll write letters for you and it'll send emails to the landlord on your behalf to try and see if you can find the agreed upon settlement for, you know, back rent or disputes over security deposits or things like that. So there's going to be a lot of these agents out there working with us alongside fourth parties trying to help us get to yes. Yeah, say. and and a- agents of agents. I mean, it's, it sounds v- very much like uh, the David Friedman's uh, machinery of freedom, freedom, where the, you know the, in the future we have l- less and less government intervention and more and more agents uh, acting on our behalf for it. Absolutely. And this is where subscription pricing comes in, right? Is that we will have to subscribe to these different agents if we want to r- resolve these disputes and just be perpetually subscribed to them. Yeah, I mean, the model in Europe is very interesting because a lot of people have legal insurance. So just like you pay for health insurance, you have legal insurance. And if you ever have any legal needs, you need a lawyer to file a divorce or, you know, get some money back. You, you uh, essentially, the legal insurance company assigns you a lawyer and they go do the work for you. But all of the, all of the risk is pooled. So it's not like you don't pay anything for legal costs for five years and then you have to pay $100,000 to a lawyer to go handle your case. Instead, you pay 100 bucks a month. And if you ever have any needs, it's covered. And the interesting thing about that is legal insurance companies have an incentive to resolve these disputes as efficiently as possible because, you know, they're not getting paid hourly. You know, if this turns into a $100,000 expense, you know, they just used up all of the premiums that they ever charged you. So that's a model that uh, we could look we could look into, you know, pooling the risk around these disputes. And then, and then there's an incentive to be as efficient as possible. We see the courts now, they'll pay $5,000 to administer a dispute over two years it's only worth $500. And how does that make any sense? Why They should just take the $500 and pay off the disputants. And then the, the state saves 4,500 bucks. But we don't think about it that way. We don't think about it on a cost benefit basis. I think legal service bureaus that are dealing with maximizing value to low income uh, litigants, they do think about it that way. How can we get as much bang for our buck? But the courts don't think about it that way. And that's a big challenge in trying to get them to innovate. No, a- ask uh, Jesse Smollett about uh, the court cases. I, th- I think the, ca- the case was, was, was resol- resolved yesterday, and I think he owes $150,000 in, co- in court fees. There you some, go. That's some, right. That's right. Some crazy number. So, well, Colin, this has been so fun to have you on. We, we'd love for you to come back. I, I've got a whole list of questions about, like, international and China and how that all fits in. Oh, as, yeah. We'll do that next time, Ed. We'll, yeah, well do that absolutely. next time. But thanks yeah, I'm for not the great ask questions. You about this China with 30 fun. seconds to go. <laughs> 
<laughs> China, right. thumbs up. There's, there's yeah. my answer. Yeah. Well, okay. excellent. Really, really appreciate you being on. All right, Ron, what do we got coming up next week? Next week, Ed, we have economist Michael Munger back for a third time. All right. Outstanding. Well, I'll see you in 167 hours. This has been the soul of enterprise, business, and the knowledge economy, sponsored by Sage, transforming the way people think and work so their organizations can thrive. Join us next week, folks, on Friday at noon Pacific time. In the meantime, check us out at thesoulofenterprise.com. We'll have full show notes on our conversation today with Colin Rule, and uh, you can also contact Ed or me at asktsoe at verisage.com. Thanks for listening, folks. Have a great weekend. 